0: Well, thanks, Lisa. Um, You got these things while you're coming in today. Can I draw your attention to this really quickly and just say we have been on a really long, wild ride of a journey together as a church family uh, over the last year and a half, and there have been a lot of Kind of unexpected things that have kind of moved us one direction or another since we left Plank Junior High back in March of 2020, not knowing where we were going or what would happen next. And uh, throughout this summer, we've been talking about this journey that we're on of regathering and moving forward together and... I wish I could say we were like fully at the finish line and there's no more changes and nothing could ever be made more perfect. We're not there to that finish line yet, um, but we're we're here at this place where we can take another big step forward next Sunday. Uh, we're calling it Kickoff Sunday. Uh, we'll be launching our kids' classes again. Can I get a little woo-hoo for the kids' classes? Yeah? We'll be launching those, um, and we will have, uh, I I trust and hope, uh, a wonderful Sunday together. So look forward to that. Um, Let's celebrate the things we can celebrate, rejoice in what we can rejoice in, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. So that's coming up next week. This week, please keep your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week... We talked about a heavy topic, we talked about the topic of death, and this week we get to talk about another heavy topic, the end of the world, the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, which is the day of the Lord's judgments throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Why not, after death, go straight into the end of the world, right? And one of the questions that kind of comes up when we think about a topic like the end of the world is to think, does this even really make a difference? And I want to suggest to you right up front that the way we think about the end of the world, the way we think about the return of the Lord, the way we think about the day of the Lord actually has profound and significant implications for the way we live our lives now. The picture we have of what's going to happen then influences the way we will live our lives today. And if we look back at what was going on in the church in Thessalonica that first received this letter... I don't know everything that was going on in that congregation, but if we think for a moment about some of the things that were going on there, maybe we can start to get a sketch of an idea. It's just a sketch, but maybe we can start to get a sketch of an idea of some of the kinds of things that happen uh, as as a result of the way we view the end of the world. Like pretty much every congregation we know of in the New Testament, uh, the church in Thessalonica was an ethnically diverse congregation. Some people in this congregation were from a Greek background. Uh, the city of Thessalonica is on the is, is in the area that we call Greece today, right? Um, so somewhere from kind of this Greek background, uh, they were used to worshiping a sex goddess like Aphrodite, or a party god like Bacchus, or a work god like Cabiris. So there were some in this church family who were from this Greek-speaking background. Others in this church family came from A monotheistic religious background of Judaism. And why I want to bring that up here is to suggest that there were different cultural trends. There were different cultural currents that were at work, both in that kind of Greek culture that some of the people were coming from, and also in the culture of first century Judaism that some of these people were coming from, currents that would affect the way they think about the end, and therefore affect the way they were living their lives now. On the one hand, amongst those who are from more of a Greek background, their view of the ends. Now, again, this is very complex, right? Can we talk about how all Americans view the end? Probably not. And we probably can't speak about how all Greek people viewed the end, right? But painting in broad brushstrokes, many Greek people in that time and place had a picture of life after death or a picture of the end as just kind of a quiet nothingness. A rest in peace kind of idea. And what happens if our picture of the end is just kind of a quiet nothingness after this life? One of the things that happens is that if that's all we have to look forward to then, we put all our stinking hope in finding satisfaction now. And so people in the Greek culture of their day would say things like, let's eat and drink and just be happy because tomorrow we're going to die. You see, if our picture of the end is just kind of a quiet nothingness, we put all our hope on satisfaction right now and we end up in this kind of pursuit of self-indulgent, immediate satisfaction. Whatever that may take, right? And whoever else we have to kind of step over in order to get that immediate satisfaction ourselves right now. On the other hand, one of the currents that would have been at work in that Jewish culture, or the culture of first century Judaism, uh, from which some of these early Christians had uh, had been apart before they became Christians, there was this other idea that kind of paid attention to the Bible And paid attention to the Old Testament teachings about the day of the Lord. I'm not going to get into it a whole bunch today because I'm trying to be sensitive to time. Uh, But if you just want to go, for example, and pick up the book of Zephaniah later. um, uh, In three short chapters, Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord seven different times. So you can learn a lot about what the Old Testament says in one little book. And... And the people in the first century in the Jewish culture would often read things like the book of Zephaniah and they would overly politicize it, which is to say they would read all of it in light of their current political situation and they would read almost all of it as having to do with their ethnic conflict with the emperor in Rome. And what happens if we read the end, if we read everything about the day of the Lord in an over politicized way and we think it's all about this conflict between my people and the emperor? Well, one thing that can end up happening is that we start to think that we start to think that. The day of the Lord teaches me that I need to fight for the Lord and I need to fight for my people, even if it means resorting to violence. One example of that is the life of a prominent leader named Saul of Tarsus. If you know much about the New Testament, you've probably read a little bit of his story. This fellow named Saul of Tarsus knew the Scriptures very well. He knew a ton about the Bible, and yet he walked away from his reading of Scripture and his over-politicized reading of the Old Testament teachings on the day of the Lord. He walked away from them justifying violence towards social enemies. So much so that if a social enemy like a Christian comes along... Like Stephen, someone like Saul of Tarsus will say violence is the best way to represent the Lord. Violence against my social enemies is the best way to represent him. And so Saul of Tarsus hears the testimony of Stephen the servant and orders his execution. Thinking... That this is what pleases the Lord. You see, our picture of what the day of the Lord involves, our picture of what the end of the world will look like, has profound implications for how we live now. It can lead to self-indulgent pursuit of satisfaction today, or it can lead to a self-righteous fighting against our social enemies. And it can lead into a whole bunch of other things as well. Today our cultural and subcultural messages about the end of the world are probably in a variety of ways very different than some of those cultural and subcultural images that were at work perhaps at least in the church in Thessalonica when Paul wrote this letter. And yet can't we see some of the same cultural trends still at work in the society around us right now? Cultural trends that lead people to put all their hope on satisfaction here and now as soon as possible. Or cultural trends that would lead us to think that that the best thing we can do with our lives is fight against our social enemies, even if that means resorting to violence. the Bible teach about the day of the Lord and how should that affect the way that we live our lives today? As we walk through this passage, I want to kind of raise a few questions and look at how our passage itself answers them. The first question is this, what do we need to know? What do we really need to know about the day of the Lord? And the first answer that our passage gives us is that what we really need to know about the day of the Lord is not the dates. Look with me again, if you would, at verses one through three of chapter five. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There is this draw amongst religious-minded people to always look for the times and the dates, right? Let's just think of a few examples in recent history. Uh, Somewhere uh, in the 1830s, there was a fellow named William Miller who taught his followers, known as the Millerites, to anticipate that Jesus would certainly return in 1843. And when they had their oops moment, they revised the prophecies and they said, we were slightly off because we miscalculated something. It was 1844. And then when that happened, the Millerites kind of, uh, went their own separate way and stopped, stopped looking for dates, right? Somewhere around 1914, the Jehovah's Witness movement expected the return of Jesus Christ as king in this world. And when they ran into their oops moment, they came up with some fanciful ideas about how Jesus really is reigning, but most people just don't know it. We can multiply out examples across the 20th century. Some of us are old enough to remember the mayhem that accompanied the wonderful year 1988. Yeah, 88 reasons why Jesus Christ, or what was it, why the rapture will happen in 1988. And then our secular culture and the super religious folks alike decided that New Year's Eve on 1999 was sure to be a slam-bang event of some sort, right? And so our secular friends and our super-religious friends alike predicted all kinds of things about the end of the world that was sure to come. Uh, when the clocks started tipping over uh, at the end of the day uh, on December 31, 1999. And these are just a few examples of things that have just happened here in our little slice of the planet here that we call America. And, and probably many of you... Uh, If you use this magic information portal called Facebook have probably discovered uh, some similarly effective predictions about the end of the world uh, on that uh, wonderfully informative uh, source of information that we call Facebook. It doesn't take much browsing uh, in order to find somebody predicting something these days, right? In a similar way, back in the first century, people were anxious to figure out what are the dates? What are the times that, when this stuff is going to happen? When should we look for Jesus to return? And the answer that the missionary team delivers here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is, is essentially, you don't need to know that. Concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here the missionary team is really just echoing things. That Jesus himself taught about his return. For example, Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? And yet we've got this constant hungering and thirsting to discover more. And so after Jesus died and rose again, his disciples who were right there when he said that in Mark 13, 32, they come back to Jesus in Acts chapter one and they say, Jesus, Jesus, Can you tell us when this kingdom is, when this kingdom thing is really going to kick into gear? And Jesus repeats himself again in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, and he says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so when the missionary team is writing here in the New Testament in First Thessalonians chapter 5, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. They're just echoing the same thing that Jesus has been saying. There's stuff that you need to know about the end, but it's not the dates. There's stuff you need to know about the end, but be careful with that inner thirst to discover details that the Father does not intend to reveal to you. There are things you need to know, but they're not the times or the dates. So be careful with that thirsting to discover that kind of thing. What do we need to know about the day of the Lord? One thing we need to know, or one thing that this passage makes clear is that we don't need to know the dates. But what do we need to know? We do need to know that the end will come suddenly. Borrowing imagery that Jesus himself used when describing his return or his second coming The missionary team says here in verse two, you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Very suddenly, in other words, the day of the Lord is as unpredictable. And perhaps we might even say it's going to be as unexpected. Or perhaps we'd say it's going to be as sudden as the arrival of a thief in the night. Let me pause for one second um, and lighten the atmosphere from the end of the world and all of that and tell you a cute little story, okay? Is that all right? Can we do that? So when I was about 16 years old, I got an awesome first car. You ready for this? I got a 1980s champagne beige Toyota Camry. Can you say, whoa, whoa? In fact, I went on the internet and I found this is not my own, but that's, that was it. And when I pulled up to my high school, I felt pretty cool, right? In fact, you know what I had inside of that 1980s Toyota Camry? Those of you who are alive in the 80s will realize how awesome this was. You know what I had? I had a CD player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was awesome. And as a 16-year-old driving one of those to school every day with a CD player mounted in the, in the dash, I knew I had pretty much just about arrived. And then one morning I woke up and um, my family lived in an apartment building my junior year in San Diego, the city that we lived in. And I woke up one morning, and I got ready to go to school, and I went downstairs, and I walked over to the spot where I was sure I had parked my car the day before, and the spot was empty. And some of you know me, and you know I'm kind of ADHD, so my first thought was... I must have forgotten where I parked my car. So I walked all up and down the aisle. I walked like all the way around the building looking for it. And I realized my car is not here. So I went back upstairs at like 7.20 in the morning. And I found my parents. And I told them, somebody stole my car. And apparently they never went to the like workshop about believing victims. So they assumed, like I did, I must have just forgotten where I parked it, right? They didn't want to believe me. And so they went downstairs and I showed them, this is where I parked it and there's no car there. And we looked all up and down the the line just like I had. We walked all around the block looking for it. No car until finally my dad said, I think somebody stole the car. And I said, I know. That's what I've been trying to tell you. You see, here's the thing that I want to illustrate with this. is like I knew that there was such a thing as cars getting stolen... This was a category that existed in my mind. I had read about it. I had heard about it. I had probably seen it on like Scooby-Doo cartoons or things like that growing up. I had this category in my head that sure, cars can get stolen. But that night when I went to bed and that morning when I woke up to look for my car, I simply did not expect that this could possibly be happening to me. I knew that such a thing could happen. I had such a category in my mind, but until it happened to me suddenly, unexpectedly, without my having predicted it, I barely believed it even when I saw the empty parking lot right there, the empty parking spot right in front of me, right? And as one Bible commentator points out, probably with a little bit of a smirk, this is the trouble with burglars. They do not tell us when they're coming. (laughs) This is the trouble with burglars. They make no advanced announcement of their arrival. This is the trouble with burglars. It is not their habit to give us a 10-minute warning. And so you see something of what Jesus and the New Testament are illustrating for us with this picture of the thief that arrives very suddenly. Unpredictably, if you will. Not meaning that we've never imagined that such a thing could ever happen. But like a thief breaking in in the middle of the night, it's unexpected. It's virtually unpredicted. It happens suddenly. Perhaps even when you least expect it. This is the image that the New Testament... This is one of the the images that the New Testament gives us to tell us What do we need to know about the end? What do we need to know about the day of the Lord? We need to know that it will come suddenly. And we need to know beyond that, not only that it will come suddenly, but that it will come, perhaps we would say, inescapably. I think this is something of what the next image shows us. Look with me if you would again at verse 3. The sentence goes on, While people are saying there's peace and security, in other words, while people are sleeping soundly up in their apartment at night, assuming my car will be there in the morning, right? While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. now I'm going to be really honest with you and say um, that whenever it comes to talking about labor and delivery as a dude in mixed company, I feel really self conscious. <laughs> and i'm like I'm always like scared because i don't I know much more about having my car stolen than I know about what it's like to go through labor and delivery. So if some of y'all believe that you see more clearly what this says, I believe you, okay? I believe you and some of you are far more expert than I am. But the point that's that, that 1 Thessalonians five three seems to be getting at is that labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. Which is to say that labor and delivery proves to be far more out of our control than we'd like to realize or think. Sometimes labor and delivery begins at a time that we simply don't expect. And once it begins, it will carry out its course in ways that we won't have power over. Labor and delivery arrives and happens in a way that is, we might say, inescapable. And in the same way, 1 Thessalonians 5.3 wants us to understand that while we don't need to know the dates and the times, we do need to know that the Lord is returning. And He will one day return suddenly, and with the sudden return of the Lord. What happens next will be inescapable for every human being on this planet. Or, as the confession says, he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. There will be no escape. There will be no saying, I wasn't quite ready yet. There will be no saying, this is uncomfortable and I'd rather not go through with this. Now, when the Lord returns, it will be sudden and it will be inescapable. How then should we prepare for the sudden and inescapable day of the Lord that is coming according to Scripture? How then should we prepare for that day? How should we live in light of it? In verses 4 through 7, and especially in verse 6, our passage gives us direction. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, I want to be really clear that this passage is not saying that the godliest people sleep the least. I've said this before. You've heard me say this. I actually find that some of the godliest people sleep a lot. And I find for my part, when I don't sleep enough, I become very ungodly and cranky. Right? So the point of this passage is not that if you get fewer hours of sleep, you're somehow storing up more points for the day of the Lord or something like that. It's an image. It's a metaphor for being awake. Being alert. Living as daytime people, not as nightlife people. And this again is consistent with what Jesus himself had taught. Going back to Mark chapter 13, once again, Jesus taught... Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And what does Jesus say is the take-home point of that? Therefore, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. I'm going to kind of keep skipping forward here for the sake of time. I had some other things there, but I'm I'm just going to kind of press on for the sake of time and move on a, a little more deeply in this passage and ask the question, what does living awake and living sober require of us on a daily basis? If Jesus is going to return suddenly, and if that's going to be inescapable for every one of us, and if that calls us to live awake... To live as daylight people instead of nightlife people. What does that actually call for in our lives? That question begins to be answered in verse 8. Look there with me if you would. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. How? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope Of salvation. What does it look like. To live awake and alert. It requires of us. These three virtues. Faith. Toward God. Love. Toward others. And hope. For the salvation. That will be revealed. For those who are in Jesus Christ. On the day of his return, faith, love, and hope. This passage calls us to get ready on a daily basis. Now, I like baseball. Some of you don't. That's okay. Some of you use the baseball analogy. If you want to play catcher, even at a little league level, you've got to put on a few pieces of equipment first. You've got to put on your chest protector. You've got to put on the face mask. Why? Because even at a kid's level, if you squat down behind home plate and the kid in front of you is taking hacks and he tips one and it comes flying right here, you don't want it to bust up your nose and mess up your head, right? If you want to play catcher, if you want to get in the game, you've got to put on your chest protector, and your face mask before you squat down and get ready to catch. Right. In a similar way, in a similar way, 1 Thessalonians five teaches us that if we want to get involved in the game of life, awake, full alert life. It will call for some armor and it will call for a helmet. It will call for some armor that you will need to protect your chest. You will need faith toward God and love toward others in order to get engaged in this issue of living life fully and awakely and alertly to the glory of God. You will need armor of faith and love. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more next week. And so I'm going to set aside faith and love for now. But not only will you need faith and love to kind of protect your chest, you will also need this helmet. Protection for your head. And what does that protection for your head involve? Look with me again at the end of verse 8. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I want to slow down and think together about this issue of the helmet that we need in the Christian life in order to get engaged in the battles we face against the world and the flesh and the devil. This helmet that we need, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.8, is a helmet of hope. A helmet of hope. A helmet of looking forward into the future and seeing not despair. Looking forward into the future and seeing real hope for the real future that awaits us. Real hope for real salvation. Now, the missionary team that wrote this letter, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they understand that the day of the Lord will involve real wrath is the word that's used here in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine. It's a word that's been used a couple times earlier in the letter to the Thessalonians already. It's a word that descri- that requires just a little bit of description. Because too often when we see the word wrath and we try to apply it to God, the only pictures that we have to come up with to say this is what wrath means is the only pictures pretty much, I should say pretty much the only pictures that we have at a human level are pictures of wrath done wrong. Pictures of somebody just emotionally flying off the handle and flipping out. And raging in ungodly and uncontrolled ways. Usually in ungodly and uncontrolled ways that are disproportionate to the offense itself. And if we have this picture of what wrath means, and we hear the Bible describing the day of the Lord as a day of wrath, we might rightly say, what's wrong with God?" That's not godly to fly off the handle, to flip out, to disproportionately react to wrongs that have been committed. But this is a case where if we begin with the human picture and try to paste it to our picture of God without recognizing we're talking about God then we're bound to misunderstand what we're talking about here. There's an ancient Christian doctrine called the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's a kind of weird, big, clunky phrase, but what it means is this. It means that God is a simple whole. And what's true of God is always true of God. In every one of his manifestations. And what that doctrine protects us from is it protects us from thinking that sometimes God is nice and kind and gracious and generous. And other times God is mean and harsh and judgmental and flying off the handle. What the Christian church across the years has seen in the scriptures and understood and tried to teach to one another across time is this important idea that what's true of God in one moment. What's true of God in Christ is always true of God the Father. What's true of God the Father is always true of God the Spirit. And what's true of God in one place is always true of his character at all times. And so even when we come to talking about something heavy like the doctrine of judgment. We can't just disconnect that from the love of God itself. And say obviously this is just God flying off the handle. Losing control. Forgetting to be nice and loving for a few minutes. We can't disconnect the doctrine of God's judgment from the doctrine of God's wisdom. And His full understanding of how all the pieces fit together. We can't disconnect it from the doctrine of God's omniscience knowing everything there is to know. We can't disconnect it from the doctrine of God's mercy. His tender-hearted compassion toward the humble. And what that tells us is that when we talk about God turning in wrath to judge the world, we don't mean that God will one day finally become fed up and just fly off the handle. What we mean is that our loving and all wise and all knowing and all merciful God will one day do something about all the wrongs that have gone unaddressed over time. And as people who aren't all wise, or all knowing, sometimes we don't see all of the pieces and how they fit together. But I bet that many of us have had those experiences in our lives. Where we've seen real wrong happen. And we've felt from somewhere deep inside us. Not just a feeling of flipping out in anger and rage. But something deep inside us that says that's not the way it's supposed to be. And something needs to be done about that. Sometimes sadly or tragically. We've had those experiences in our lives where something has happened wrong and something needs to be done about it. And tragically, maybe we've even involved the proper authorities. And the proper authorities haven't done anything about it. And in those moments, I think we start... It's not the full thing. But I think we start to get a taste... Or why it is that an all-loving and all-wise and all-knowing and all-merciful God one day will come again to judge the living and the dead. To do something about all of the wrongs that have been multiplied across history and never addressed. At least not fully. And so we have this picture of the Lord returning In His own wrath. A wrath that is not disconnected from love or wisdom or knowledge or justice in any way. But a wrath that is the fulfillment of love and knowledge and wisdom and justice in every way. And the frightening part is... That if we slow down long enough, we realize not only have we felt the effects of evil ourselves. But we've been part of the problem. And not one of us can exempt ourselves from that. Every one of us has transgressed or wronged those around us at some point in our lives. Too often... We've got away scot-free. And the trouble is we begin to believe our own publicity. We begin to believe our own success story. I I got away with it. I'm getting away with it. I'm going to be all right. And yet God's word warns us over and over and over again from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22 our loving and wise and all knowledgeable and merciful God is a God of justice. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that includes every one of us. And suddenly we're looking forward to a coming day of the Lord. And maybe part of our hearts longs for the beauty of seeing justice. And maybe part of our heart says, "Uh oh, but what about me? And this is where 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 gives us this precious hope that can buoy us and carry us all the way from where we are today until that day when He returns. This precious hope of the Gospel which tells us first of all that for all of us who are united by faith with Jesus Christ, Listen to this, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. It doesn't say, don't worry, His wrath is no big deal. It says, God has not destined us for wrath. And then we say, well, wait, how did I get off the hook? And how can I get off the hook and God still be just? Next verse, verse Verse 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but He has destined those of us who are united with Jesus Christ to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Paul's answer about the wrath of God that is to come and how to have hope when we look forward to the day of His coming wrath is not to say, don't worry, His wrath is no big deal. The New Testament's explanation for how we can look to a coming day of God's judgment and wrath and have hope for that day is not to say, I bet you're I bet you're too hard on yourself and you're a better person than you think. The New Testament's answer for how we can look at a coming day. Of justice and judgment and even God's right wrath. And how we can have hope for that day is to say, this is why. It's because He gave Himself as a substitute for us. Dying the death that we deserved. Bearing the wrath of God. Fully aware that that was the mission He came to accomplish. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fully aware that this was the mission He had come to accomplish. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I had not lived. And He suffered the sacrificial death To pay for our sins in a way that nothing else on earth or above the earth or below the earth. You think of that Revelation 5 search for anybody else who can unlock the scroll. There was no other way to unlock the scroll of hope. In a way that nothing else in all the universe could give us hope. The death of Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath of God that is to come. To use the language that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 uses or to use the language of this passage here. He died for us so that we might live with See, as we look forward to a day of judgment and wrath. And notice some of the details of this. It's not a day in which, you know, kind of our judgment and wrath will win the day over our social and political adversaries. Saul of Tarsus had to learn a thing or two. And it's not a day of nothingness and emptiness such that you better get all the satisfaction you can in this life. It's a day of real judgment and a day of real liberation for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's, and that's the message, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, that we need to put on afresh every single day. Because the enemy of your soul is going, the enemy of our souls is going to come after your head every single day. Because the world will be sending its messages at your ears every single day. Because that's true, it's not that you need to get saved every single day. You're saved and you're secure in that salvation. And yet every single day, what do we need to do as followers of Jesus? We need to go back to the message of the gospel and put on the helmet of salvation afresh. You already are saved. I praise God for that. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are saved. But let me tell you something. Tomorrow, when you wake up, you need to put on that helmet of salvation again. Why? Because the enemy of your souls is going to be coming after you afresh and saying this life is all you got. You better soak up all the satisfaction you can right now. And you will need the helmet of salvation to protect your head. From those temptations. And the world and the flesh and the devil are going to be messaging you again tomorrow and saying you better fight for your people. You better fight against your social enemies. If you don't fight for it, who's going to fight? And we need to put on afresh the helmet of salvation. The helmet of the hope of the salvation that will be fully revealed when He returns. And He will judge the living and the dead. And so tomorrow when you get up If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to need to pick up this helmet of hope once again and put on that helmet and say throughout the day today, I'm going to continue hoping in Him. I'm going to continue staking all my hope in life and death in Jesus Christ. And not only that, you know what else we need? You know how we build that kind of confident hope that comes to us in the gospel? You need to put on the helmet of salvation tomorrow, but you know what else you need to do? You need to help others get the helmet of salvation on as well. Notice where this passage ends in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Listen, the Christian life is not an individual sprint. It's a team event. It's a family affair. We're in this together. And so just as desperately as you need the helmet of salvation tomorrow, your brothers and sisters in Christ in your small group need hope tomorrow. That's why we get together in small groups and we talk to each other about the hope that we have in the gospel. And that's why we gather together on Sundays and we sing about the hope that we have in the gospel to one another. And this is why we gather together on Sundays and we explain the hope that's found in the gospel over and over and over again, even though you've heard it before. You say, I know the gospel. I believed in it years ago. I know, but you need it again. This is why we encourage one another as we take the Lord's Supper and we keep on proclaiming to one another that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and therefore we are people of hope. As we look forward to his return. This is why when we leave and we encourage you week after week, let's not consider this the end of the service, the finish line. Let's consider this the starting gun. Because it's not just about you having your own personalized in- encounter with Jesus. It's about living as a part of a family of faith. Where just as much as I need hope, others need hope. And sometimes when I need hope, it's going to come to me by the Spirit's work through the mouth of somebody else who's got an encouraging word today. And then through the encouragement that I have, I'm going to have a little more strength to pass it on to somebody else tomorrow. Tomorrow. It's not just about me and my individualized experience with Jesus. It's about our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who loves us. Who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So that we might live As people of hope. Listen, this passage teaches us quite clearly, Jesus is returning. The day of the Lord will come. It will come suddenly. It will come inescapably. And it will be a day of wrath. Real judgment for real evils that have gone unaddressed. And yet, For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death for us, the return of the Lord is not something we dread. It's something we hope for. It's what we long for. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our hope. And we, because He died for us, we will live forevermore with him. And listen, that sweet hope of the gospel, there's only two possibilities at this point in time. Either that is your hope for life and the last day or today it could be your hope for life in the day of the Lord that is to come. Either it is your hope or it could be. And my prayer for all of us today, as we prepare for the week ahead and the years ahead and the race ahead between now and when our Lord Jesus returns, my prayer for us is that we will be people of deep hope, looking forward to his return. Deep hope in him. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.